Today's episode of Positive Regression is sponsored by Craft Beer Club. Craft Beer Club is the original craft beer of the month club, searching for the exceptional craft beers from around the country to deliver to your front door. Whether it's a gift for someone else or you want to treat yourself, each shipment includes 12 beers from among the best microbreweries in America, many of which have earned top awards. Our Microbrew News newsletter accompanies each shipment so you can learn more about the featured craft brewery and the brewmasters. Check out the brewery's tasting notes and test your beer geekiness with beer trivia questions. And you can customize your own ongoing beer club membership, whether it's annually, monthly, or quarterly. There is no membership fee. There is no obligation to continue. You may cancel your membership or gift at any time for any reason. Your satisfaction is important. Shipping is always free within the contiguous United States, and if you purchase using beer.posregpod.com, you will receive up to three bonus gifts with your order, and you will help support this very podcast. So take advantage of the offer. Place your order now at beer.posregpod.com. The strategy from last week and what it could mean going forward, what worked, what didn't, and where courage and a little luck came into play. And we take a look at the short tracks, how they've changed, and what that could mean for this weekend's playoff race in Richmond. But first, as always, this is episode 78 of Positive Regression. This is the Barney Visser edition. David, great choice. Barney Visser, not a driver, but a memorable owner, certainly, David. What he did seemed impossible. He created, ran, and operated a team out of Denver, Colorado, that went on to win a damn championship in the Cup Series. But that long road to success obviously came with a very quick exit. David, the 78 will always be associated with Visser and Furniture Row Racing. Where do you want to begin with this, uh, with this piece of racing history? I think we talk about all of it. I mean, from the, the very beginning, I recall Kenny Wallace, who was the, the team's first driver, talking about driving for this new team. He was on his inside NASCAR show back when Speed Channel existed, and he mentioned Joe Garoni was fielding the team, and I had heard the name, wasn't familiar. I was in college at the time, and I had to do some digging to understand it wasn't Garoni. It was actually Barney Visser, uh, who was the money man behind Furniture Row Racing. Initial thought, terrible name, but it made <laughs> sense because it is his business, uh, Furniture Row, strip malls with different furniture stores in them, and calling Barney Visser a money man sort of sells it short, uh, in my opinion. Barney Visser was a visionary, flat out. He was smart enough to build a sustainable team outside of the Charlotte area hub. And you mentioned it seemed 
impossible. It's kind of weird to say that, but when you think of all the personnel and resources associated with NASCAR just happen to be in about mm, a 30 mile radius, uh, it is kind of a wonder that he was able to pull this off. He was smart enough to grow uh, this team in an incremental fashion. None of it was aggressive. He bought low on drivers. After Kenny Wallace, we saw Joe Nemechek in the car. Then it was Regan Smith. And then it was Kurt Busch, a former champion, a year after he'd been fired by Team Penske. And then it was Martin Truex. And Barney Visser knew he was buying low here. He always talked publicly about not paying Martin Truex his market worth. And that wasn't a rich man bragging. He knew that he could not afford to pay Martin Truex his market worth. And he was always gracious. He always noted that, uh, that Truex accepted less money to drive for him and brought him a championship. Visser believed in autonomy for his employees. Joe Garoni was the team manager, clearly made some good calls. I don't know whether Todd Barrier was a, a good call, but Barrier hired a young engineer named Cole Pern, and Cole Pern turned out to be Barrier's replacement on Pretty one good. hand, but also, <laughs> but also a very good crew chief. And, and, uh, without that autonomy, I don't know that we would have seen that. Allen Furniture Row didn't operate like other teams. I, was fortunate enough to talk to Cole Pern earlier this year for an article about Furniture Row Racing's leap year uh, back when I wrote for The Athletic. It was actually my final article writing for The Athletic. But Pern explained his logic. He hired engineers from IndyCar and elsewhere. Uh, Peter Crate, who is back in IndyCar now, and Jeff Curtis, who is now at Joe Gibbs Racing, uh, those two and Cole Pern formed what was this three-headed brain trust? And that's how the number 78 team operated. Pern said that Barney Visser was prepared to do whatever it took to win. And by that, Pern didn't mean spending lots of money. He meant okaying things that weren't typically orthodox based on NASCAR history Visser operated as his own man. He didn't join the RTA, uh, the Race Team Alliance, and he was intelligent enough to recognize when it was time to shut it all down. He lost his sponsors. The relationship with Joe Gibbs Racing was either too costly or too untenable or both, and NASCAR didn't cut much of its TV money to teams. So Visser identified it was time to wrap things up, and I so respect that. Uh, what an existence. And Alan, I'll leave you with this. Their final race as a team in 2018 at Homestead, they didn't win the race, but the number 78 car was the fastest car in the race based on central speed. So they didn't go out on top, but they did go out with speed to burn. Very cool. And that's something they can always hang their hat on. I loved everything about the 78 team and Furniture Row. Just the, the, the rogue feeling of it all, right? It was already this group, you know, west of the Mississippi. Uh, you think of Cole Pern and you think of them showing up, you know, race day with t-shirts and hoodies when everyone else is in their standard race uniforms and all that stuff. They were just a different breed and it kind of felt that attitude too. And again, just the audacity to even come up with the team from Colorado and have them compete over here. And then to have the 
exit the way they did. I mean, it was all very much on brand from uh, the beginning of it right to the end. You hate that it ended, but what it proved to me, David, just the whole concept is you, you had to have all the right pieces in, in racing. And I know that sounds simple, but Rob Kaufman, the billionaire, <laughs> once told me if it was all about money, we'd win every single race, right? This is a billionaire telling me this because he has all the money. But it's not just about all the money. It's about the right people. It's about getting a Cole Pern and a Martin Truex Jr. and having those pieces fit into place and having those relationships and everyone gel together. And we saw when it worked, it was awesome, and it was awe-inspiring in terms of their speed and their success and the attitude they did it with, and it's a, it's a small piece but a large, a significant piece of NASCAR history. It was pretty cool what Barney Visser started. Indeed, and no, it didn't last as long as it probably should have, but uh, it was nice uh, while it was here to see a smart, unorthodox race team in the sport having success and doing it their own way. Good stuff. Episode 78 of Positive Regression, the Barney Visser edition. All right, let's get this episode started because we don't always look back with an episode, David, but it's important this week to at least acknowledge Darlington and the things we saw in terms of strategy because strategy will play into just about every race going forward and strategy only gets more important now that we are in the playoffs in the Cup Series and will soon be there for both truck and Xfinity. Uh, specifically, David, we're going to look at two calls from the truck race a Sunday that I was a part of, uh, broadcasting for FS1, and then the cup race later that night, the Southern 500. All right, so we're going to start, David, with what we saw Sunday night in the cup race. Let's fast forward to the, the third, the final stage. Martin Truex has won the first two stages. Kevin Harvick, he's around, but he hasn't had the best night, certainly not the fastest car, certainly not what Martin Truex Jr. was for much of that race. So this final stage will make or break, obviously, how the Southern 500 ends. So we get into the final stage, and Kevin Harvick and crew, Rodney Childers, decides to pit them early, earlier than others. He pits at lap 287 from the fourth position. Martin Truex, who's leading the race, waits until lap 307, 20 laps later, where he pits for the lead. Now, while that has happened, Kevin Harvick has taken his fresh rubber and driven all the way back up to fourth. So I hope you're following here. Obviously, if you watch the race, you know what I'm talking about. Kevin Harvick and crew pit early. They start making their way back. Martin Truex Jr. stays out for another 20 laps before he comes in. Now, if the caution doesn't come out, David, right? In theory, Martin Truex Jr. has the freshest rubber and will eventually cut his way through the field once again and should, in theory, be able to pass everybody and perform like he had been the rest of the night. But theories don't always always work out like that, because the caution did come out, David, and then suddenly everyone's on the same strategy. I think it was about lap 323, and then from that final restart, look, again, Martin Truex Jr. was doing well. He was back in the lead, fighting with Chase Elliott, or fighting him down, chasing down Chase Elliott, but Kevin Harvick had made up a lot of track position because of the fortuitous timing of that caution and the pit strategy they decided to uh, apply that night. And what happened? Truex gets into Chase Elliott when trying to make a pass for the lead. Kevin Harvick takes advantage. And Kevin Harvick, without the fastest car in the race, ends up winning. Is that a fair explanation, David? <laughs> yeah, it was a really good summary. I wonder if any of our listeners didn't watch and just got the uh, the fill there. But 
what was interesting about Kevin Harvick's strategy as it was materializing and a couple of teams thereafter, Austin Dillon, uh, perhaps as well, ended up finishing second, but he was close to the same strategy as Harvick's. They were on a two-stop strategy. They were going to have fresher rubber late in the race had the race gone green. Now, a two versus one stop strategy, that is something that is more prevalent in IndyCar. It's rare that it's ever doable in NASCAR, but the design of the final stage at Darlington allowed for this this kind of rare thing to occur. When the final stage went green, there were 131 laps left divided by two. That's 65 and a half laps or 89.4 miles. That is doable as we saw on fuel mileage, but there is a big difference between NASCAR and IndyCar. In NASCAR, especially at Darlington, tire wear is massive. And as you mentioned, that fall off, it was over two seconds. So teams pitting once, like JGR did, would have slower lap times on average than teams pitting twice. However, they'd have the on-track delta as an advantage. It was incredibly risky, especially considering uh, those teams on two-stop strategy are ripping off those fast lap times, uh, especially if they short-pitted like Harvick and Dillon and the Hendrick cars. And they're also primed to take advantage of a caution, which I might add, we talked about this last week, about the high frequency of yellows earlier this year at Darlington. That wasn't the case this past weekend. Sometimes that happens when a race is longer. In this case, it was 500 miles. But assuming the race would go the majority of that final 131 lap stage entirely under green, that's a pretty big assumption. I would personally bet against that. The teams that finished first and second in this race did too. Mm. So I, I understand the risk in trying to make that final run on one stop. I don't know that I understand why Joe Gibbs Racing was trying to outfox seemingly everyone when it was clear they had winning speed. Martin Truex was the fastest of this race, and a risk like that is sort of unnecessary. Fortunately for him, he pitted in line with everyone when that debris caution came out. He had the third fastest pit crew during the regular season. NBC mentioned uh, that Truex's team pilfered a tire changer from Eric Jones's team. So the theory there is that Truex's team made a strength stronger. He could have ultimately won this race heads up. He tried forcing a pass that wasn't there at a point in the race where it wasn't necessary. And uh, so that occurred and, and we didn't see whether JGR strategy would have worked. And that's tough to think about because, you know, could they have pulled it off had the caution not come out? You mentioned the lap times. I mean, again, in theory, on the fresher rubber, I mean, Kevin Harvick having to make another pit stop if it were to go that way. Uh, what side do you lean on when determining if JGR could have pulled this off or not? Well, we know it would not have worked for Denny Hamlin <laughs> because uh, that's another risk of long pitting on a track with heavy tire wear. You're risking the closing rate. Uh, faster cars 
biting you in the ass pretty much literally. I wouldn't have imagined Jimmy Johnson being the one doing the honors, but that was a risk. But Truex, of course, on fresher tires would have been better than the Truex that we saw who tried to force a pass. I think that's why you build a strategy like this, because you're assuming that passing is difficult, and it was, despite what were the reported green flag passing numbers, track position was difficult to achieve. There was a lot of back and forth side-by-side racing, but completing passes was a very tough task, and it was largely dependent on tires versus tires. So if... If you are JGR and maybe you're unsure of your ability to get a straightforward pass against someone like a Kevin Harvick who had the fastest pit crew during the regular season, then yeah, that's probably why you enact this strategy. And Truex would have been the guy to benefit from it based on his speed. But it's also that speed that makes me think this was, by and large, just an unnecessary risk by JGR, especially when they already had the track position in the first place. Uh, how about the other side? Because there were times, or most of the race, right? Kevin Harvick was not the man to beat. I think that leads to Rodney Childers making a call early in this race, right? We have to do something else. If we're not the fastest car, we have to do something else to earn ourselves track position, even if it involves a little bit of a gamble and catching a caution that will uh, put us maybe on even playing field or... Uh, or maybe not work out at all, but at least gets us some track position. I mean, those are important calls to make when you're not the man to beat or the team to beat uh, on a given night. See, and I didn't view it as a gamble when he did it. I know that hmm. they were struggling. You could you could tell the difference in Harvick's handling when he was deeper in traffic. They showed his in-car footage where his steering wheel was really choppy and his car was back-end loose. Uh, when he got into clean air, the car was smooth and he's driving it like Kevin Harvick normally does. So clean air certainly affected his car, but that call, the call to short pit, this is a track with heavy tire fall off. That's kind of pit strategy 101 kind of stuff. I mean, I guess we live in a world where basic is the connotation for, for bad, but, or, or unoriginal. But in this case, I thought the basic call was the right call. And if you're in that position, it's the one that you make because you're putting your driver probably in clean air by himself because you're going to time the pit, the pit stop correctly, but you're also putting him on fresh rubber so that he's able to rip off these fast lap times and cut into that on-track delta that JGR accumulated. The problem that JGR had, they, they honestly could have just pitted then and ended whatever small advantage Harvick gained but they kept on for 20, 20 laps. NBC showed Adam Stevens taking a, a swig of water from his water bottle, just waiting, waiting for the, the right lap. And their gambit did not work. Uh, so I actually thought that, uh, Harvick and, and Dylan and the Hendrick cars had the right idea. And yeah, 131 laps final stage. You're thinking that whole thing's going to go green. I'd say that the odds are. Against that. Again, I, I get the, the risk. I would have expected to see that from someone like a Cole Custer or a Matt Benedetto who might not win at Darlington in such a straightforward manner. Uh, but to see the fastest cars on the racetrack try it, I, that's where I kind of differed because I don't know that they needed to do that. 
Interesting stuff. And it wasn't the only strategy play we saw that day in Darlington, because earlier that day, there was a truck race uh, that I was uh, happy to be a part of down on Pitt Road uh, for FS1. And David, I had all those lead trucks. Uh, we, we had two pit reporters that day, and uh, it just how it worked out, the split. I had the leader, Sheldon Creed. I had second place, Brett Moffitt. I had third place, Austin Hill. I had fourth place, uh, Ben Rhodes. And I'm trying to remember who else was there because I had most of the leaders, right? So it comes down this entire race. Sheldon Creed is the leader. He's been, he's been pretty much the truck to beat throughout the day. His teammate, Brett Moffitt, has been right up there as well. Austin Hill had been threatening. So it comes down to those three having to make a call whether or not to come into the pits for what will soon be a green-white checker. They're going into overtime, and the decision has to be made. Come in and pit or stay out on the racetrack. Well, those three come in. Sheldon Creed, Brett Moffat, Austin Hill, and others came down to pit. They gave away the lead. They gave away their top positions. Meanwhile, Ben Rhodes and 11 other trucks stay out. Ben Rhodes restarts as the leader. He goes out and wins the race, David. Uh, it was a something of a surprising call because two laps at Darlington, clean air advantage, and you have the best truck. And crew chief Jeff Stankowicz for Sheldon Creed decides to bring him down pit road. And granted, some others came. I mean, the three leaders came. But what do you think of that decision to pit with only two laps to go at Darlington? You know, the difference between these two calls uh, from the cup race and this, JGR strategy was a considerable risk. This in the truck series race wasn't a risk. It was just a bad call. Uh, I've, I studied, uh, for motorsportsanalytics.com, studied 333 clean restarts dating back to 2019 in the Cup Series. The lead car retained position 75% of the time. If we take into account the 30 instances in which the leader selected the wrong groove and lost the lead, that now accounts for 85.9% of all restart attempts. That's a sizable enough advantage, I think. I, I do encourage you, uh, all listeners to, to read that article and I'll, I'll put a link to it in the episode notes. Even if that isn't enough, even if there is concern about a difference in tires, the equalizer is clean air. The leader on a late restart has nothing but empty racetrack ahead of him. And even if there are cars behind the leader with fresh tires, they don't have that clean air. For the most part, we aren't racing at tracks with five different grooves, right? There, there's really only one that has that where fresh tires can charge to the front immediately and NASCAR is going to tear that down so it can become a half mile short track. So it's a safe bet that if you stay out and restart as the leader, you're going to get that intended result. And Alan, I'm, we can, we can set that aside, but I have to factor in the game theory here, right? Because if you pit as the leader, that is a tacit admission of surrender. You have guaranteed you are not going to win this race. So I'm just curious. I just want to ask you, why wouldn't you just stay out? Why wouldn't you allow your driver to, in effect, lose 
the race. And a driver like Sheldon Creed, who has had success this season on restarts, I would think that that's a pretty plumb position to be in. I know that it's not ending naturally on a long green flag run and the lead is safe, but at the same time, that number two team was very well suited for this precise situation. Yeah, and again, I, I don't mean a Monday morning quarterback anything, David, because I'm not a crew chief and don't understand those situations fully, but uh, I will answer that I don't know. I don't know why you come down unless you are just really worried about tire wear and that you don't or that you need it at a place like Darlington, I guess, or potentially, you know, you think about double overtime or, or, you know, potential for more and more restarts and the fresh rubber you may need. I just don't know. I mean, is it validated at all, David, that the others came down as well? I mean, first, second, and third came down. It wasn't just one, you know, you can't, I just can't write it off as one poor decision by one crew chief because uh the other two leaders and others down the way also came down. So there has to have been some thinking that I just haven't dug into far enough yet uh because it's only you know we record this earlier in the week and uh to un- to get their understanding i look forward to learning more about it because a lot of people had the same thought and but the ones who did the opposite uh were the winners right yeah my theory here is there were many bad decision makers that day <laughs> in darlington because, because i mean really when you think about it if you're where where was ben Rhodes running was he fifth i mean fourth or fifth yes yeah. Yeah, when you say like, oh, the front row, okay, yeah, sure. Derek Krause's team, yeah, fine, we'll take this. Why Why wouldn't they? And we talked a little bit about this after the race uh, via text message, and and you told about uh, told me about the format. Like, w- we know what you have to do here. You have you have to win to advance. That's the whole point of what some some of these mid packers are trying to shoot for everyone isn't coming down pit road. So that yeah. goes again to if you have the lead and you choose to relinquish it, you're not getting that lead back. I mean, the stats are against you, but even then the game theory behind it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And that was my, what I was explaining to you is, uh, okay. So the worry we hear a lot, look, okay. There, if you're the leader, people behind you will do the opposite, right? If I stay out, everyone's going to come in and get fresh rubber. If I go in, everyone's going to stay out. So feel me out on this. If I'm the leader, right, and my fear is everyone is going to come in behind me if I stay out, they're not all going to come in because of this format, right? This format rewards winning so much in terms of a guaranteed playoff position, especially late in the season, that if even if I'm the leader and second, say, through fifth, all come down pit road and get fresh rubber. There will always be a small group of trucks or cars, what have you, that are the type that need nothing but a win, right? Second place would mean nothing to them. Fifth place, seventh place, you know, we're late in the season. Points don't matter. We need the win. That bubble, if you will, uh, of mid-packers, whatever you want to call them, are always going to stay out just in case they can possibly get that Hail Mary of a victory, right? So to me, there's always going to be a potential buffer for anyone that stays out, especially on the front row. There will always be a small buffer of cars or trucks to have that little protection and especially for only two laps. And that just, that part blows my mind is that the format I think creates, will always create a buffer of people who, you know, WTF, let's just stay out for the hell of it. So you got a buffer there. And David, let's not forget 
Gumming down pit road exposes you to the potential of a penalty. And that's exactly what happened to Sheldon Creed. Not that's only, right. yeah, not <laughs> only do you give up the lead, you, you put, you open yourself up for a speeding penalty, which he got. So he never even had a shot at using that fresh rubber. So again, in hindsight, it's always easy to say, what'd you do, man? Because 99 just drove and, uh, you know, he had a little, had a little trouble with Derek Krause. Derek Krause had a hell of a restart, but the 99 stayed out, had a good truck and drove on to victory. And it was a great decision. And the opposite was not. I forgot all about the penalty. Yeah. That was icing on the cake. Really? That was, yeah. I mean, that, that was just one race where we kind of just left scratching our heads, uh, at a team that, Seemingly just gave away a win or at least a, a very good finish. Uh, folks, if you have the lead late in a race, don't relinquish it. Just keep it. Even if you lose, just keep the lead. You'll be fine. Yeah. Three teams did though. So I, I can't fault just Stankovich and the two crew, uh, two crew, uh, you know, the 23 and the 16 also came in. Who knows? Oh, well, we'll see what they do with it going forward. Uh, but yeah, a lot of strategy uh, calls in Darlington and something to just think about decision making as we go further in the playoffs. And speaking of moving forward, we're heading to short track, short track, David, in the Cup Series, well, all three series in Richmond, but again, the Cup Series obviously in their playoff mode. And before we get to the Richmond preview specifically, David, let's talk short tracks in general, because on the Cup side, after 27 races, David, the Cup guys have only been to two, two short tracks so far this year. And, you know, we're in September. Uh, Bristol and Martinsville, those are the only two races they've been to on the short tracks so far. And, uh, those tracks this year feature a high horse horsepower, smaller spoiler package. Uh, David, that's th- that different package. That's changed the way we look at production and results, you know, in one package versus another. If you go on motorsportsanalytics.com, you break down the 550 horsepower package versus the 750 package. Uh, different performances, if you will, different productions, depending on the package. What's the best way to evaluate how much that affects things or how, how, how much that can affect a driver? Ooh, yeah, good question. I, I've taken to looking at just the changes from last year to this year. You're seeing a lot of the same names. Uh, we've said it before. If you're fast at one track type, you're probably going to be fast at the other. Cup Series teams tend to uh, tend to rise to the top. Uh, good Cup Series teams, that is. But I, I look at who was maybe middle tier and and coming into that first tier Chase Elliott was the sixth fastest car last year on 750 tracks he's now the fastest uh his surplus passing value though it that's where he has lacked uh if he can get to a point where he is scoring more long run passes uh, on this track type. And right now he's at a positive 0.92 compared to a 2.09% on the 550 tracks. If he can get it to a, a high positive, he's going to win these races. He probably should have won Bristol and uh, another driver having the same effect, but worse, really Joey Logano was the 10th fastest car on this track type last year. He is now fourth. His, Surplus passing is a high positive. Seemingly, he could be a favorite this weekend and next week at Bristol. And he's kind of my low-key favorite for Phoenix if he even gets that far. 
right now his top 15 efficiency all in is negative 17.4%. That is the worst among series regulars. It tells us that positive regression should be in the cards at some point for Joey Logano, or he's just going to end the year having run far, far better than his results suggest. But those two drivers who I'd argue have underachieved based on what they've done for races as a whole, uh, those are two to watch in these next two weeks just because of those big strides they've made strictly from the spoiler change. Yeah, and so you look kind of year to year. I was looking just between the numbers between when I look at 550, you know, how drivers doing uh, analytics wise or stat wise on 550 tracks versus the 750 tracks. Uh, like Kyle Busch's passing, uh, there's a big disparity. You know, his his passing numbers much better on the 750 horsepower tracks with that package compared to 550. Not that the 550 is bad, but there is a disparity there in the positive way when Kyle Busch gets on these short tracks. Now, that might be his natural talent, but th- those numbers are there that under 750 packages, there there's a jump in performance there. So I think that's a benefit to him, obviously. Yeah, and I actually have him as someone who could potentially be worse off because of the spoiler. Keep in mind, he had he had a high surplus passing value on the 750 tracks last year. He was complaining about a lack of passing on that track type. We talked about that. That's one of those things of be careful what you wish for because he was one of the few drivers having success. Now a lot of drivers are having success. Now, if he was arguing for the good of the sport, then good on him. He achieved everything for which he was hoping, but it's potentially affecting him in a negative way. He's actually gone from the third fastest car to the seventh fastest car on 750 tracks. And in the two short track races that we've seen, those were far more competitive. Phoenix was far more competitive. Dover was a track position race, but it was interesting, and we saw different players throughout the day. So I would suggest that Kyle got everything he asked for. He just might not want it. And Alan, before we we close the book on this, one driver uh, to look at this weekend, Jimmy Johnson. He was the 15th fastest on 750 tracks last year, now ninth. And he is also a positive surplus passer. I'm going to say if he's going to win before going out this season, it's going to come on a track type uh, that falls in to this category. Nice. All right. So obviously the package used on, you know, larger than what we would consider the short tracks of Martinsville and Bristol or what have you, but Richmond David falls into that, right? The short tracks of, of the NASCAR Cup Series, the, the Bristol and the Martinsville's of the world. So has the new rules, this package, the 750 package, has it made for good short track racing? How do you evaluate that and how do you answer that? Oh boy. How do you, how do you evaluate that? I think based on the passing that we've seen and the numbers bear it out, it is certainly more in the driver's hands this year, and that's a good thing, right? I'm not a fan of taking things off the table, taking pathways to winning off the table. Uh, so that that is a step in the right direction. I'm not actually sure that it can get 
much better than what we're seeing. And what I mean by that is these teams are very smart and good at figuring out how to best optimize setups for these tracks. And when that happens, every track becomes the host of a track position race. I think this gets to a point. NASCAR claims it wants to provide its fans parity, which, okay, great. But to achieve that, teams would have to be, for lack of a better word, dumber or less experienced. And you know, not to diminish, uh, any smaller series, but we'll, we'll take the truck series, for example. Is there one singular championship favorite right now? I don't, no. I don't think so. No, and that's, that's what I love about it. And that's born out of inexperience and having smaller teams with less technology. But those days are over for the cup series. And that's what happens when top forms of auto racing anywhere evolve. So what, we're witnessing what we saw last year with this rules package and this year. Of course, NASCAR wants pack racing and a lot of cars on your screen at once, all passing for position. But what we're seeing is high caliber intuitive racing. That means that parity is difficult to achieve. And when fans claim they want more short tracks, they want bumping and banging and fist fights, and you're, you might still have that. The Bristol race earlier this year had some of that. I don't think a, a punch was thrown, but the majority of the time you're going to get smart, intelligent racing where teams have properly optimized their cars. And that most often yields a race without those things that, that fans like that, you know, make it onto promos and commercials for ticket sales. Which is all to say, I think you're going to see a, a, a really good two weeks worth of racing. It might not be everything that you have hoped with all these wild thoughts. Um, but I think we're kind of to a point, at least in the Cup Series now, from a technological aspect, that we're probably not going to see those kind of races ever going forward because these teams are too smart for that. All right, David, that was bigger picture, you know, the short with the short tracks and the 750 horsepower package. Let's drill down now as we start our weekly preview of the upcoming race. We're going to Richmond and for the first time, the 750 horsepower package with the reduced spoiler at that track. So based on what we saw at Bristol and Martinsville, what do you think we should expect at Richmond? Now, when I start answering this question, I look back at those races. Bristol, 17 cautions in that race. Four different drivers, though, let 85 or more laps. You know, that's some parody that I enjoy when I watch a race. There was some drama at the end. But then we look at Martinsville. There were seven cautions, and that includes the stage breaks and the competition cautions. So really just four other cautions. And, you know, the race wasn't bad, but it was dominated by Martin Truex Jr. and Joey Logano. So it seems like we had two different races in terms of how you describe those things at Bristol and Martinsville. So what do you look at when you think, what can we expect at Richmond? I think you hit the nail on the head with the Bristol caution volume. I, I think it could be high this weekend, which even that might not be required to eliminate green flag pit cycles. I don't expect to see stops under green. So this isn't a pit strategy race in that regard, but it'll certainly be a track position race, especially because we don't know what the new Richmond with this dynamic looks like and controlling track position is within a crew chief's control. They're 
was hardly any passing in last year's playoff race at Richmond, passing that was relevant to the nature of the finish, I'll, I'll say. I would anticipate more of that based on what we've seen from this package this year. But if I'm a crew chief, I wouldn't bet my game plan on it, if that makes sense. I wouldn't expect two tire stops either, given the the fall off there. Last year's race, the beginning of runs, saw sub-23 lap times for cars in the front of the field. Those same cars were running 24 eights toward the end of a run, and that's a legitimate two-second fall off. Pit stops will be important. Uh, some of the fastest four-tire stops we will see all year should come at Richmond. The pit wall is a little lower, so it provides a nice launch for those jumping off the wall. I'm not kidding. That is a thing. <laughs> and given the choose rule, mistake-free pit stops will be vital, as they always should be, uh, because I don't know if there's another strategy that would be a separator right now. You're right. There's a lot of things that we just don't know. Um, and those questions will remain until we're well into the race. But if you're just designing a game plan, you gotta, you gotta focus on what you can control. And, uh, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at is track position and solid pit stops. Yeah. And when it comes to getting that track position, I mean, you have to think, like you said, strategy, pit stops, uh, also obviously restart, something we talk about here always on a uh, positive regression. So how do, how does the restart dynamic factor into potential track position? I would say based on last year's races, uh, they had 12 clean starts and restarts. The inside served as the preferred groove barely. And if this weekend's race looks more like 2018, then the inside is still favored, but the disparity between the two grooves becomes a bit wider. It wouldn't shock me if drivers, when making a choose decision, just flip lanes within the same row because through the top 14, no position last year saw a gain or loss greater than a half of a position. For instance, third place saw one spot loss on one of every two restart attempts. So if you're third, the bet is to pick fourth, but the fourth place driver would not be better served picking fifth to get on the inside row. Uh, just take the third place spot. It, it might be that simple. It's just going to be a swapping of where you're at just because uh, the gains and losses are small uh, and it's more easy to defend your position regardless of where you are relative to the tracks that we've seen uh, that have utilized this shoes role. All right. And so we are at the second race of the playoff for the Cup Series. Which playoff drivers need Richmond to go well? David, for me, this question has an easy answer, and that's Ryan Blaney. <laughs> uh, because of, well, obviously, his current position in the point standings, uh, after a horrendous start by Darlington, obviously with the penalty, and then just not a good night whatsoever, and then not having his crew chief, all that stuff, you guys know what happened. But David... He digs himself a hole and then goes to his worst track statistically, both his attitude about it. I mean, I've, we've heard him talk about it before. Does not like Richmond. It has not been good to him. Uh, David, eight races he's had there. Average finish. You know what it is, David? 25.5. I'm going to let that play out. 
25.5 is his average finish <laughs> at Richmond. What? Are you kidding me? Dave, Ryan Blaney has never cracked the top 15 at Richmond Raceway. If you told me that before doing this podcast, David, I would not have believed you. So, yeah, Ryan Blaney needs Richmond to go well for him. Yeah, uh, best finish of 17th in those eight career what? starts. Yeah, I think he would be ecstatic with just a good finish. Doesn't have to be a great finish, but a good finish at Richmond. The the week after that, Ryan Blaney at Bristol, that is always an awesome sight to watch. He's led 60 laps or more in four of the last five Bristol races. He might win that race and it could be a walk-off win into the next round. However, he crashed out of two of those races and I'm betting that We've uh, never seen a, a Bristol playoff race. My guess is that it's going to be volatile, and he doesn't want to bet simply on having to win that race. That is a very tall task. Uh, so, yeah, Ryan Blaney lost 10 points before the Darlington race even started, and then he finished 24th, worst finishing playoff driver. I'm in agreement. He needs Richmond to go very well. All right, let's uh, move on to our weekly best segment everyone loves, I'm sure, for their betting and DFS purposes. <laughs> David, our contrarian contenders. I'll let you go first. Who is your contrarian pick for? Are we sure people win? love this? Yeah, I, I think I, I think okay. they do. Sure. <laughs> oh no, I hear feedback all the time. Uh, okay, I will. I will pick uh, the seven-time champion, Jimmy Johnson. We talked about. His speed, he has the third fastest car on short tracks this season. That's just two races. Ninth fastest on 750 horsepower tracks. That makes him the fastest non-playoff driver heading into Richmond. I do worry about Hendrick Motorsports on any kind of racetrack without high-banked corners. I'm going to let that linger because I've got nothing else to add. I don't know how they correct that. I, uh, they've, they've struggled at those kinds of tracks uh, the last few years. But uh, if they're going to make any kind of radical experimental change, it could be for the guy who's not in the playoffs but in his final season. I hope that's the case. But either way, Johnson's numbers on 750 tracks pop on paper. So we'll see if that becomes a reality. I hope it does because, Alan, I am terrible in this segment. David, we asked for contrarian. You went with a seven-time champion, but I'll let it slide because he's not in the playoff. Uh, I, I also asked. I also picked someone not in the playoff, David. We've only been to two short tracks this year, but I'm picking a driver who has better short track speed and central speed, according to motorsportsanalytics.com, so far this year than four other playoff drivers. David, that driver is Ricky Stenhouse Jr. I think he has a good night in Richmond on Saturday night. Uh, he, he has some great passing numbers in those two short track races. Not great results, but I think if he can overcome the results aspect of it, uh, he will have a good night and finish better than 15th. I mean, that's not given a lot. I'm not expecting a ton out of him, but I think that given what he's shown us so far on the two short tracks, he will finish well into the top 15, and that makes him a contrarian contender this week. What do you think? Not a bad record for him at Richmond. I think he's got a top five on his resume, all of them coming from Roush Fenway. And uh, let's face it, JTG Doherty Racing could absolutely use a good day, a good finish, and 
Ricky could as well. It's been a low key season. You mentioned his passing. He's been uh, an excellent, efficient passer, aggressive, certainly, but he's getting the job done in traffic. Uh, yeah, it's entirely possible. He could be fun to watch. Entirely possible. We'll see what happens next week and address it. See who's, uh, if, if just how contrarian and how well my contrarian contender pick does. All right. Good episode, David. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and now on TuneIn. That means you can hear us on Alexa. And it was the coolest thing, David. I said, Alexa, play positive regression and it freaking works. So give that a try. If you've got an Alexa at home, we are available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This does help in spreading the word. We, of course, notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on? I am going to plug a new feature on motorsportsanalytics.com. It is called Plan Your Restart. I did it last week in advance of Darlington. We'll do it again this week before Richmond, but that is a detailed look at restart retention and plus minus, and I even rank the restart spots just so that you can prepare for when your favorite driver enters the choose zone. You'll know how to grade uh, how they, uh, how they made out. And also head to my Twitter feed at David Smith MA and click on my recent article for Forbes. I interviewed Kurt Busch about his future, what he's seeing happen around him on the free agent landscape and how he's sort of become indispensable, uh, during a weird year for Chip Ganassi racing this season. He is their lone playoff driver give that story a click if you're just killing time on the internet no you'll learn a lot it's always good and if you're listening to this on thursday morning when the pod drops first of all thank you for being a subscriber it also means we're racing the truck series regular season finale on fs1 in richmond uh tonight on thursday i promise you there's nothing else on the sports dial that night so watch the truck race it's gonna be good i'll be there on pit road and just make sure you keep it on uh the Fox family of networks watch NASCAR all weekend long. Check out my Twitter feed. Did some cool stuff. Interviewed Brandon Jones, uh, wrote up a nice essay on the truck series going forward and it should be a good race on Thursday night. So thank you everyone for listening to positive regression for David Smith. I'm Alan Cavana. Have a great weekend, everybody. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.